You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. We are heading into Hebrew. This is week 18. Week 18 in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. And we're going to go all the way down to verse 26. And we're going to finish uh, the rest of this chapter. And and honestly, we're going to be walking into a very hard section of Scripture that can be very intimidating um, to us, which means that we have a tendency to look at verses like these, starting in verse 26, and we have the desire just to skip over it. Um, to ignore it in some ways. Because these verses put us face to face with our sin, and it talks about the judgment and the vengeance of God towards that sin. And those ideas don't often compute with our version of a God that is very gentle and loving, and a, a version of Christianity that's very gentle and loving. Uh, they don't compute with those if we've built our faith around this very lovey, lovey God. And so we skip over them. And we are unable, seemingly, to reconcile what we think are two versions of God. This loving and kind God, and then this vengeful, wrathful God that we read in verses like these. And so what tends to happen is that we just pick a side. We tend to pick a side what what we think we believe and what that creates is where we just kind of read scripture and skip over the parts that we don't like. Or some fixate themselves on these particular verses and verses like this that talk about the vengeance of God, and they spend a lot of time condemning people to be judged by God and preach and talk very little about the love of God. And so I can't tell you necessarily what causes people to lean into those categories or into those views. Uh, I I think in some ways it, it can deal with our unbelief uh, maybe in a consumeristic faith and, and, and also in our pride and our self-righteousness. That, that I think at the end of the day, our hearts want to believe that God is loving and kind because we want to do what we want to do and we want to believe that God's going to forgive us at the end of the day. But also some lean into these passages about vengefulness and the judgment of God uh, as a way to be right in the world. To, to feel in some ways justified around the people. I know something that you don't know. And if you knew what I knew, you, they can feel better. There's power in that. And so they lean into those sort of verses on judgment. And so I think that it's important for us today to understand that this is an either-or situation. That God isn't loving and kind, or he's judgmental and vengeful. But it's both and. That God is perfect in love, but he's also perfect in justice. Now, our human minds, we can't can't comprehend uh, how to be perfect in love and perfect in justice. I feel like with my kids, I'm either way too loving or or I'm just way too hard in, in the justice part. I don't know how to balance those things, but our God can. And that makes him supremely worthy of our worship and our devotion, of our faithfulness and our love. And so we're going to walk today into to two realities, the reality of God's love and justice against a people, 
and the reality of a love and the justice of God being for a people. Those are what we're going to be walking through today, and I hope that will create better understanding of the breadth and the width and the largeness of our God and his character and attributes. And so let's take a moment and pray, and then we'll jump into God's word. Lord, we just come before you today. We're eager to learn from your word. Lord, help us to strip ourselves from any sort of belief that we have that it isn't in your scripture, that you would use this word to, to convict our hearts, to guide our hearts. Spirit, will you make these words come alive? Lord, forgive us of the way that we didn't honor you this week, that we've sinned in front of you, Lord. Grant us forgiveness through the blood of Christ Jesus. Use these words in a powerful way in our life today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hebrews 10, we'll start here in verse 26 and just hit these first two verses. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, I think that this is an important juncture to remind us of the importance of context within our scripture. Uh, I think that if we take verses like these or any verse in our scripture outside of its context, it easily and quickly gets misused. And so if we are to just pluck these out of Hebrews, these two verses without its context, the story around it, we will probably get an entirely different understanding of what they actually mean. And so a hard and fast rule that we've got to understand when reading our scripture is that the greater amount of context we read around a verse, the better our understanding. And conversely, the smaller the context we put around a verse, the more happenstance or opportunity we have to speak hearsay or believe hearsay, something that God isn't for. And so hard and fast rule, larger chunk of scripture is better than smaller chunks of scripture. And so if we just read these two verses, should we just take them as face value? To simply interpret them and say that if we sin and we know that we're sinning, willfully sinning, then it's over. Like we're doomed. If you go home today and you have a good lunch and you're full and across the table you see that cheesecake and you take not one piece but two and you give in to the sin of gluttony, is it over? Am I done? Now there will be people that might say yes, but I don't believe that this is what that passage is saying. This is not what the scripture is saying. It doesn't mean, listen, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be very concerned about our willful, deliberate sins against God. We should be very concerned. But I think it's saying something else. We remember in the book of Hebrews, this author has spent a great deal of time a lengthy deal of time reminding his readers of the supremacy of Christ in the new covenant. This little storm-tossed church in the first century has experienced a great deal of persecution. A great deal of persecution. There are people that once walked with them faithfully that now have rejected the Messiah and they have reverted back into the Old Testament covenant. They have sought relief from their persecution by going back to their fellow peers and, and believers in Judaism. And they are now again practicing animal sacrifice in the temple, practicing Torah obedience and following after the Levitical priesthood. And so the person the author has in mind is this person. 
It has them in mind, and it's them that should have a fearful expectation of the judgment of God. One who has been enlightened about the person and the work of Jesus, who walked with his people, who experienced the goodness of the body of believers that has now openly rejected the Messiah. And the term for that is called an apostate. An apostate is one who has renounced the work of Christ. And so in this particular case, in this letter of Hebrews, it's one who denies Jesus as the Messiah and reverts back to the old covenant practice within Judaism. It is a deliberate sin that leads into a complete repudiation of the work and the person of Jesus Christ. This verse is not saying that if you willfully sin, you're out. Can sins of the premeditated nature be forgiven? And the answer is yes. Yes, they can. And we see this millions of times in our Old Testament. We walked through the book of Hosea and read about the stupidity of God's people turning away from God. They actually worshiped another God. And God was still faithful to them, trying to get them to come back to them. We read in our Old Testament about a man named David, who God says is a person after his own heart. David has an adulterous relationship with another man's wife, and then has that man murdered. Murdered. So I don't know what kind of sin you're committing. I don't know what you're hiding in here, but I'm telling you, it's not to that degree. This is not what that means. Now, we said last week and the weeks before that in the Old Testament law, there is no sacrifice in the temple for deliberate, willful sins, only sins of the unintentional nature. They call them in the Old Covenant sins of the high hand. Sins of the high hand. There is no atonement for those kinds of sins. Uh, of acts. In fact, God instructs his people in the Old Testament to actually cast out from their presence the people who deliberately sin against the Lord. And so why is it that God is so concerned about his people deliberately sinning against them, so much so that he has not provided a way to atone for that specific sin? Well, I, I think it's helpful to maybe imagine it in this way. If you were a millionaire, and somebody came to you and they sold a significant, stole a significant amount of your money. And they knew it was wrong and they got caught. And the judge at sentencing looked at his book and said, uh, the consequence or the punishment for that kind of crime is that you have to go and you have to wash the windows of the person that you stole the money from. Now, first, the person that committed the crime is going to look at the judge and say, so what? You're telling me that I can steal all that money and all I got to do to make compensence is to go and do something like wash this guy's window? And the judge says, yeah, that's, that's the punishment. What sort of motivation does this criminal have to not do the very same thing again? And more than that, what sort of motivation for, does anybody have who hears of that sort of recompensate or punishment have to not do the very same thing? What does that do? It creates a people that say, I know that's wrong, but I don't care. I know it's wrong, but I don't care. The benefit outweighs the punishment. I know it's wrong, but I don't care. Somebody who willfully sins against God is a person that says, Lord, I know it's wrong, 
but I don't care. Lord, I know it's wrong, but I don't care. And we have to realize that God hates sin. God hates sin. He hates what it does to his creation. He hates what it does to his people. He hates how it mocks his goodness. He hates how it festers and grows in our life. God is not okay with people willfully doing things that he has said, this is not for your good. There is no sacrifice that one can make in the temple to atone for that kind of sin because it's to say to God, I know your law, but I don't care. Now, the question is, is, is there forgiveness? There's no sacrifice, but there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. David, after his, forgive, after his folly with Bathsheba, writes this very powerful psalm of lament and confession, Psalm 51. He confesses his guilt. Let's read a first few of these verses together. He says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Against you and you only have I sinned and done, done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And so the object of David's sin on earth was Bathsheba, her husband, and their family. Multiple sins. But David knew rightly that his sin was first and primarily against God. Now, our sins have consequences and ripple effects in the lives of others in the world, but all sin is first and primarily a sin against God and his law. David confesses as a way to share his burden with God, to show remorse, but also to bring glory to God by acknowledging the goodness and standard and the character of the God that he betrayed. Now notice what he says here in verses 15 and 17 in that same song. He said, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in the sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. David acknowledges in this verse that there are no sacrifices. If there was, he would give them. And so what does he do? He throws himself at the mercy of God. He throws himself at the mercy of God with a contrite and broken heart. He repents. He repents. His forgiveness not, does not come through a sacrifice. His forgiveness comes only through the mercy of God. And that hasn't changed in this new covenant. Are our sins of intention and unintention covered? Yes. Why? Not of us. Not of us. But only through the mercy of God found in Christ Jesus. Our sins, they are many, right? But his mercy is more. Now, David... David faced some pretty harsh retribution from God for his sins. But we, the people of Christ, don't have to fear that sort of justice because God's justice was satisfied through Christ in his sacrifice. It is not the deliberate sin that's the issue here. It's the going on part of this scripture that is the issue. Going on deliberately sinning. John 
the gospel writers writes in, in one of his three letters about this very same concept. In 1 John, he says, everyone who makes a practice of sin. So the crux of the issue here is the practice or the habitual nature of our sin that in fact leads us away from the mercy of God to the point that we become blinded by our own sin and jaded towards the holy God of the universe. And so I would say that the first century apostate did not start out going, you know what, I'm going to become an apostate. This resurrection gravy train seems pretty good. And so I'm going to ride it for a little bit. And you know what I'm going to do at the end of this? I'm going to pull the rug out from everybody. I'm going to say, ah, fooled you all. Didn't believe it in the beginning. You guys are fooled. No, that's not what happened. The reality is probably closer to this, that he had some deliberate, ongoing compromises or sin in his life that festered and grew, ultimately culminating with him being blinded by his sin, continuing in them, denying the existence of God, and walking away from them. Now, you may say, now hold on here a second, Sir Sherlock. You said to us a couple months ago that if anybody came to genuine faith in Jesus Christ, that there was no way that they could lose their salvation, that salvation can't lose them. Now, look, you can disagree with me on this, but I don't think these verses contradict that at all. Let me, let me put it to you in, in, this, uh, in this way. Con consider uh, a, a relationship here on, on earth. Uh, this might be helpful. A parent-child relationship. So you have a child. And let's say that that parent spends all of their time focusing on themselves. Right? They never spend time with the child. They neglect this child. They're centering themselves in the worlds around themselves. They don't pursue the child. They don't seek after the, the child's life. They are a negligent parent. Over time, what's going to happen? There's going to be a drift in that relationship. And eventually, if not rectified, there will become estrangement, which means that they have no relationship and there is tension or hatred in that relationship. Now, here's what happens. Now, this can tend to happen. I can't say that this always happens, but what tends to happen is that at some point, the negligent parent begins to justify their own wrongness. And somehow, they shift the blame and the responsibility from them onto the child. And they begin to say, they just hate me. They, they don't want to spend any time with them. But who is the adult in the room? They're the adult in the room. They're the adult in the room. It's crazy, but that happens. Sin, pride leads us to justify our wrongness. And it's just silly. Now, at a deeper level, what does this reveal? It reveals that they probably never wanted to be a parent in the first place. But even more interesting, it probably reveals that they became a parent for all the wrong reasons. That maybe they thought this child was going to somehow fix something in their marriage. That maybe somehow they thought this child was going to somehow fix something in themselves. That they were going to create this mini-me that was going to love them unconditionally for all the days of their life. And they didn't realize that kids are stupid hard, right? They had the wrong expectation with the wrong priority. Now, this has a little to do with the effects of deliberate sin one who continues in sin. If we are negligent of the law of God, of the commands of God, of God's word, where we don't, we, there might come a day where we don't see the mercy of God as merciful. If we continue in deliberate willful sin, there might be a day that comes where we no longer see our need for repentance, our need for a broken spirit, 
where we might even blame the God of the universe for the problem in our relationship and the problem of our lives. And we might simply wash our hands from him. Now, by rejecting him, after being enlightened, what we have probably revealed is that we came to faith for all the wrong reasons and all the wrong understandings, that it really wasn't about Jesus, that it really wasn't about forgiveness of sin, that it really wasn't about repentance or kingdom, but primarily it was about ourselves, and it was about a feeling. So please don't understand this as me saying that you need to make sure that you plead mercy over every winful sin of your life because God won't forgive you if you don't. There's not a single example in Scripture of somebody gaining salvation, losing it, and then gaining it again. There is nobody that's in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. There's no example of that anywhere in Scripture. You can't lose your salvation because of deliberate sins, but ongoing deliberate sins may eventually reveal that you never had it to begin with. There is no Scripture ever in our text that will contend to us that we should continue on in our sins. Quite the opposite. The weight of our scripture says that we must, with all due ability, be serious about killing the sin in our lives. We can't be a people that say to God, I know it's wrong, but I don't care. That is playing with fire. That is playing with fire. Those who reject Christ should have great trepidation in their lives. Now, the interesting thing is, is they don't. Like, if you reject Jesus as your Savior, that statement that I just made is laughable to you. People who reject Jesus, they don't care. And I think, conversely, what that says to us, if you're in here today and you are wrestling with your salvation, and you go, I don't know, I don't know. If you're wrestling with your salvation, I think that is evidence of the God of the universe working in your life. Now, I believe that you can have assurance and the joy of that assurance, but I think that God is working in your life. Those who don't have salvation, they don't care. They don't care about this stuff that we're talking about. And then he goes on in Hebrews. He says this in verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be delivered by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And this is such... An interesting phrase. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And so the Old Testament law demands that if any two or three people come together in agreement that somebody has blasphemed the law of God, it's, that they have set aside the law of God, they would be just to stone them to death, to destroy them. And certainly this is a possibility for those who this letter was intended to that their claim that Jesus Christ was the Messiah could result in them being on the street in a moment, stoned to death. And so I think the author, in a sense, knows a bit of this concern, and he goes on to say, but if you think that that is bad, it is much worse for one to exalt the name of Christ and his righteousness and then go on to smear his name in rejection 
to smear the one who loved the world so much that he gave up his only life, to declare that his blood was just a common thing. There is no mincing of words here. The Lord will repay. And this phrase, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God, is heavy. Uh, Michael Kruger, I, I love what he says about this verse. He's a theologian pastor. And he says, this is a Bible verse worth memorizing. It is theological ballast, which will prevent your ship from listing. When people try to tell you that God doesn't do judgment, this verse will remind you that he is a holy God who cares about sin. God cares about sin. And from this point, our author transitions from the reality of a people whose God's love and justice is against to the reality of a people whose God's love and justice is for. And he says, starting in verse 32, some great words of encouragement. I think they're for us today. And he says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. And so the former days that he's talking about are a reference to the days under the Roman emperor Claudius. In AD 49, Claudius expelled Jewish Christians, the very people that this letter was written to, out of Rome. They were first banished from the uh, Jewish synagogue by the Jewish uh, establishment, and that created all sorts of chaos and disorder and riots. No one was killed, but those of faith were subjected to much ridicule, public shame, and then expulsion. And he points this out to help them remember their remarkable faithfulness back then. He said, you endured a hard struggle. Now, in Greek, this terminology, hard struggle, denotes a, a very exhausting athletic competition, a hard-fought athletic endeavor. He's saying, your persecution was hard. You were expelled, you were mocked, and you were shamed in the public arena, and you knew the people that were there if you didn't experience, but you stood your ground. You stood your, and you didn't quit. And you're dedicated to perseverance and forbearance in Christ. There wasn't anything passive in you about your faith. You held your ground and you fought the good fight of faith. And then he goes on to say in verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had better possessions and an abiding one. These people risked their own lives to visit those of faith in jail. And it says that they had compassion. That word compassion is the same word for compassion that it says that Jesus, our high priest, has on us. They gave themselves wholly to those of faith in jail, all while enduring personal loss. They joyfully, joyfully allowed and accepted people to plunder their property. Like, is it not the desire of all humanity to hold on with firm grips to everything that we own? I mean, we fight over an inch of a property line or a scrap of a metal, but here these verses say that they trusted in the Lord and his promises so much that they joyfully allowed it to happen, knowing that they had a better treasure and a better kingdom. They remembered the words of Jesus, right? Who said, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth 
where moth and rust moth and rust destroy, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. The Lord was faithful and in their midst, and they experienced a great perseverance. And then he goes on in Hebrews 35, we'll end the rest of our scripture. He says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for. Yet while a little while, and the the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. So if I could summarize these last grouping of verses in two words, he's saying, don't quit. Don't quit. He reminds them of the former days as one to challenge them to remember their perseverance and their character amongst previous hardships. But secondly, to help them recall the faithfulness of God to them in those days. That even though those days were hard, that God was with you, and he was for you. Look, I think in moments of great struggle in our life, we lose perspective, don't we? Uh, The weight of our circumstances often create panic and self-preservation. Yet if we quiet ourselves and remember the hardships of our past, we will recall the faithfulness of God in the midst of them. It is a profound joy that can be experienced by the people of faith that we can look back on the most cruel and difficult moments of our lives and and not see them through the eyes of anger or dejection or disappointment, but somehow through the goodness and the mercy of God, we can glance back at all of those difficult moments in our life and our hearts can be filled with gratitude because no matter how difficult they may have been, God somehow redeemed it. And somehow God made good out of what was meant for evil. God is for us. And so don't quit. Don't shrink back, as the author says. Sorrow will last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. You are the type of people to live by faith, knowing that endurance and our faith will end with ultimate victory and reward, that we will someday experience in person all of the promises of God coming true. God is with us. And these passages teach us a lot about the judgment and the vengeance of God for those who reject him, but also about the justice and love to those that God is with. God is the definition of love. He will not let his creation be demolished by the sinfulness of mankind. It is not loving to let sin that belittles and destroys this creation and openly mocks his holy name to continue. That would be absolutely unloving. His great love requires an equally great justice on sin. And that should elicit a little trepidation in all of us, a little fear in all of us to continue in our sin against a righteous God and move forward towards repentance and desirous of his mercy. But for those of faith, the wholeness and the enduring nature of God's justice reveals even more substantially his wonderful love for us. That by sending the Son, 
whom endured all the wrath that God had for sin, God's justice was satisfied. We see the eternal and infinite love that God has for creation in this, that the Father sent the Son, that of the love of the Son, He bore our sin, and from the love of the Holy Spirit, He applies all the benefits of salvation to God's people. It is a glorious and comprehensive love that God has for us. God is for those of faith. But it's not that God's love or justice has been satisfied simply in the life of Christ. Christ's atoning work has so fully united those who trust in him by faith to the degree that the perfect justice of God will not permit anything less than the same reward, faithfulness, and eternal glories due the Son being bestowed and awarded to the faithful in Christ. That through the wounds of Christ, God is for us. Do you get that? That not only through the just, was God's justice for sin satisfied in the, in the death of Jesus Christ, but because of our faith in Jesus, the only just thing that God can now give to us is that which is due the Son. His love for us. He cannot be anything less than just and loving to us in the same manner that he is to his own son. And so we have a love and a justice in our God that means that we can endure whatever is in front of us, that we can experience the same sort of faithfulness and love and provision from the Father as he has given to the Son. It is ours by faith. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. And so the, the message of, of this scripture is quite simple. Consider your sin, remember his faithfulness, and don't quit. Don't quit.